You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. But this morning, as we get here to verse 43, Mark 5, 43, this story is the one where Jesus heals two people, right? He's healed the woman who has the issue of blood. She's been sick for years, has spent all of her money trying to get healed. The doctors haven't been able to do anything for her. She sees Jesus. She goes, that's the guy that's going to heal me. All I need to do is get to Jesus. And she has this visceral response where she goes, man, I'm down. I'm out. All I need to do is grab onto Jesus. In fact, I need to grab the hem of his garment. I just need to touch him. And I have faith. I believe that I will be healed. And she touches him, and immediately she's healed. And Jesus is like, what happened? Like, I felt power go out from me. Something happened. He turns around, and she, she admits it was me. And she's sort of nervous, like, did I do something wrong? And Jesus goes, your faith is what has healed you. The fact that you have given yourself to me and submitted yourself to me, Jesus tells this woman, your faith has made you well. Go and be healed. And, and then at the same time, there's a guy, there's an official, he's a, he runs the synagogue. He's in charge of, what, for lack of a better term, the Jewish church, if you will. And he's in charge of that place. And his daughter, his young 12-year-old daughter, is sick and she's dying. And he asks Jesus to come and heal her. And Jesus is like, let's go. And he's on the way. But then this other woman touches him and there's this whole thing. And then as Jesus turns to go back to Jairus' house so that he could heal his daughter, Someone comes and says, nah, she's dead. And Jesus goes, nope, let's go. Nope, let's go. We're going to do this. And he goes in, and there's people saying, saying, what, what good are you going to do? She's dead. And Jesus goes, nope, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And what happens? They laugh at Jesus. They mock Jesus. And they're like, what's up with you? This is, this is evidence. This is science. She's dead. She's not breathing. And so what does Jesus do? He pushes everybody out of the room except for the mom and dad and his three guys, three of his disciples. And then he speaks to the girl and he raises her up and she's healed and brought back to life. And they give her food to eat. I love that part. Anytime Jesus heals someone or brings them back to life, he's like, give them something to eat. That was exhausting. Dying must be exhausting. And that's okay. Jesus tells him, like, give them something to eat. Awesome. Now, check out what happens in verse 43. This is the end of that story. Mark 5, 43 says this, And he, Jesus, strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to get her something to eat. Awesome. Part two, awesome. Get her something to eat. We're all in agreement. But here's the thing that I find so interesting. As we read scripture, as you spend time reading scripture, my guess is when you guys read the Bible, are there moments where you're just like, I have no clue what that meant. I just, there's things that are in there that I'm just like, you don't, I don't get that. I'm reading through the Old Testament right now as a part of my Bible reading plan, right? And you get into the law of God and all the specifics about how he had the temple built and how he wanted the tabernacle built. And you're like, what the heck? Like, why does it need to be blue cord? And why does it need to be purple? And why do you need tassels on things? And like all this kind of stuff. And there's all these questions. And when you get into the life of Jesus, and you start tracking along with the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, perhaps you've noticed something pretty consistent in our time studying together, and it's this, that I formulate a lot of what we do study-wise and teaching-wise around questions, right? 
And the reason why pastors so often formulate their sermons and their studies around questions is because when you study Jesus, he does a lot of things that are questionable. That you're like, Jesus, why did you do that? Or why did you not do that? And I think we find ourselves confronted with something here this morning that to us in sort of like what we would think is reasonable or like even a good idea, Jesus does the opposite of. And it's this. He strictly forbids or charges everyone who saw him just heal this little girl, five people, including the parents and some of his disciples, they watch Jesus heal this little girl, literally bring her back from the dead. And then he charges them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't, don't say anything. And to me, I'm not sure if you track with this as well, but like, why? Wouldn't you want to tell people that Jesus, that this little girl was dead and that she came back to life, that Jesus was the one who healed her and brought, wouldn't you want people to know that? Wouldn't that be the thing that sort of validates Jesus's ministry and who he, wouldn't that attract more people to say, let's go follow Jesus. He's like bringing people back from the dead. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And yet this isn't the only scene that is like this in the, in the gospel accounts. You can go through the gospel accounts and find multiple examples of Jesus telling people whom he healed, don't say anything about this. Don't make a big deal or say anything about this. And the only, the only exceptions to that is when he tells someone to go show themselves to a temple priest because there was a ritual cleansing that needed to take place for that miracle to be acknowledged. And so he would say, don't tell anybody else, but go tell the priest because the priest is the one who has to validate what just took place. Okay. But in all those other circumstances, Jesus is like, don't say anything. That's confusing to me. Why not? Why, would, why, why not just tell everybody? I, I think as we read through scripture, though, we get a clue as to why Jesus might tell those people whom he healed and those who witnessed those healings, why you don't want to broadcast that out. Mark down Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew chapter 7 Jesus, in talking about the judgment that we judge one another with and the judgment by which we're going to be judged, makes a pretty, pretty extreme comment. And it might seem a little out of character for Jesus. But once you get underneath it and sort of figure it out, it makes a lot of sense. Jesus is doing these great miracles. He's healing people. He's being who he's supposed to be, God in the flesh. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Remember the people that were standing outside of the little girl's room, and they mocked Jesus because he was going to go in and heal, and they're like, what are you doing? She's dead. And he said, she's not dead, she's just asleep. And they laughed at him, they mocked him. See, they didn't have that little bit of, they weren't using that faith that God gives us to believe in who Jesus is and to believe that Jesus will do what he says to do. And so I believe when Jesus says this, hey, don't cast your pearls before pigs, right? Don't give dogs what is holy. If you put those two stories together, you might be thinking Jesus is calling people pigs and dogs, Right? And that's kind of rude. I'm not going to say I haven't used those phrases before, but that maybe that's a little bit rude. And someone could look at Jesus and go, Why would you say that? Jesus is drawing a distinction between people who have faith 
and those who don't have faith, right? He, he, he's saying, listen, to those that don't have faith, you explaining or showing them this miracle is not gonna do any good. They're just gonna trample on it. They're, they're gonna disregard the thing that just took place and they might even turn and attack you as a result of it. But in our thought processes, wouldn't we look at it and go, but Jesus, if you let us tell them about the miracle, then that would convince them. Like if Jesus is making a claim to be God, which he is, and he's claiming all these things about following him and receiving eternal life and all this kind of stuff, like wouldn't you want some evidence of those things? And to see Jesus doing a miracle, wouldn't that be perhaps the clincher for us to go, yep, I'm going to go ahead and believe in that guy. He just raised someone from the dead. Well, Jesus also talks about this point in Matthew chapter 11. Mark down Matthew chapter 11. Let me read this to you. He's dealing with the criticisms that he receives, that he's a friend of sinners he gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he sits with people at table and feasts and has fellowship, right? And he's talking about how John the Baptist was accused of similar things, that he didn't eat or drink, and he was still accused of having a demon, right? So Jesus is dealing with all of these criticisms of him and his ministry. And in verse 20, Matthew 11, verse 20, it says, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. The places where Jesus did the most miraculous, powerful works of, of healing, those places didn't actually rep repent and turn to the Lord. In verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is saying, listen, even in the places where I did the most miraculous things and was there to heal people and save people from what they were dealing with in that moment... They rejected me. They rejected me, and they didn't want to have anything to do with me. But take a look at what Matthew chapter 11 continues on and says. At that time, verse 25, Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Here's the indication regardless of the claims of Jesus, regardless of the miracles and powerful working of Jesus, the people who didn't believe, they didn't believe because they disregarded his miracles. They didn't believe because they thought they had it all figured out. They thought that they were wise. They thought that they had understanding that allowed them to disregard what Jesus was saying. And Jesus says, but Father, I thank you that you have revealed these truths about who I am and the work that I'm doing in the world to heal people and free them from the consequence of sin, I thank you that it's been revealed to children. This is where that whole concept of like childlike faith comes in. And we've talked about this before, but I want everybody to really understand this. Faith is not just simple belief. 
It's not just mentally ascending to the knowledge that Jesus is real or even that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised up from the grave. Like, just believing in that is not the same thing as faith. Faith means that you cling to Jesus. The best way I can describe this is that based on what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we were predestined by God to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That means you and me, in our pursuing the life that God has called us to live, are supposed to look more and more like Jesus the further we go through life. How Jesus talks, like that's how our mouth is supposed to start moving. How we reach out and interact with people, that's supposed to start looking like how Jesus dealt with people, right? Less like me and my emotional responses and my attitudes and more and more like Jesus. Now, here's what he says there in Matthew 11. Little kids get this. Children understand that. What do we teach children in kindergarten? The golden rule. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated. As soon as we hit middle school, what do we forget? The golden rule. And we start ridiculing people and teasing people because we're insecure in ourselves and we want to feel superior. And so we find every little thing that's wrong with someone else and we just zero in on it and we absolutely pick at them, right? And, and we do it so that we can feel better about ourselves. It starts early. But, but when you take a step back and go even earlier in the heart of a child, right? Hey, be nice. Because if you're nice to someone else, they'll be nice to you, right? This is what Jesus says has been revealed to even young children. That's the kind of faith we have to have so that we can see what Jesus does and not just acknowledge it and believe in it, but like live in that reality that Jesus will actually heal when we take time to pray. It's not just because the Bible says we're supposed to pray and bring our requests to the Lord. We, it does say that, but it's because we see the effect of prayer. We see how prayer changes people's lives. I don't have to go too deep into this room in terms of counting the people here who I've watched prayer affect their life. We could go through, and if you guys give me the okay, go ahead, throw up your hand, and I'll tell your story to everybody else. No, but, but the reality is, is that we see prayer actually working and having an effect. It ain't always quick. <laughs> it ain't always quick. It ain't always pretty. But we see prayer having an effect, right? And so we take that with that childlike faith just to say, Lord, I, I, I not only believe, but I place my faith in you, Jesus. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just sort of wrap myself around you, Jesus, and do my best to just look like you and act like you and think like you and feel like you. Now, back to our, our story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We're going to move into chapter 6 now, please. We finished with that. Uh, idea of Jesus telling the people not to not to tell about the miracle that just occurred. That's a question, right? Like that's that's a hard thing to sort of wrap our brain around. And so th it sort of leads to the next question of like, well, so then are we not supposed to talk about the things Jesus has done? Like, is that what Jesus is saying is don't talk about his things because people aren't going to believe it? Like, how else is the church supposed to grow? How is the kingdom of God supposed to grow unless we go out and declare the good things that Jesus has done? Like, we're told to go out and proclaim the gospel, right? But here's, here's what I think we're going to see in this next section of Scripture, very briefly, but very impactfully. I believe Jesus is showing us in this story what you and I are supposed to expect 
as we go out and pursue the mission of Jesus. Take a look at Mark chapter 6, verse 1. And Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And mark this at the end of verse 3. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. A couple things to take note of. Jesus comes to his hometown. And this is a place where people knew him from the time he was a boy. I think sometimes we have to remember Jesus, who is God, came in the flesh, born as a baby in Bethlehem, right? We have to remember that we pick up the story of Jesus in terms of his earthly ministry somewhere around the ballpark of year 30 of his life. That means there's these 30 years of Jesus just being a Jewish young man growing up in a household where he's apprenticing with his father to be a carpenter. There's this entire history of Jesus that's just sort of like everybody else. And there's nothing really in, those, in that history that we know of that's just like, oh, this guy's going to be amazing. You just wait. There's going to come a point where Jesus, it's just going to all come together for him. His life's going to finally get figured out. And just wait. Something's go- something awesome is going to happen with this guy. There's no indication of that at all, right? And so, and so these people are like, Jesus, we know who you are. You're the carpenter's kid. Like what? Like what do you mean to say that you're one with the Father now? You're one with Joseph? Oh, no, you mean the heavenly? What, like, Jesus, who do you think you are? Take this point in understanding how Jesus' friends and relatives and his, the people who knew him his whole life sort of rebuked him or, and sort of like rejected him in this. But take, 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 take this point. In your faith, where you are right now, don't let anyone ever think that they can define you by where you came from, okay? Where you started out in life, what you were doing five years ago or 10 years ago or last week. Don't allow anybody to define you by those things that took place in your life before Jesus came in. When Jesus comes in, he changes everything. And who you were before and what you were before and what you did before, those things are in the past, they're forgiven and they're gone. Now, I'll warn you, if we try and live that way, here's what Satan the enemy does. Nah, remember that one time, that thing, it was pretty bad. Yeah, I get it. You think Jesus forgave you and maybe he's, maybe he forgave you, but listen, remember, it was really bad and you shouldn't tell anybody about that. You should keep it a secret because it was so bad. And Jesus would say, nope, Bring those things into the light, brother. Bring those things into the light, sister, because when you bring those things into the light, they're done away with. God doesn't remember that stuff anymore. Satan's tool is to try and make you feel guilty. Guilt is not a part of our identity in the Lord. I hope you understand that. And so don't let anybody define 
you by what they think they know about you or who you were before Jesus. Now, measure this point with me. And I say measure it because there's an application for us. The last few words of verse 3 as they're declaring, we know who this Jesus is. Who does he think he is? Where does he get this authority to teach these things? And they took offense at him. They took offense at Jesus. Now, Jesus. How do we define what we know about Jesus? Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, tenderhearted little kids loved him. We see that he has a sense of humor at times. We see that he has to rebuke his disciples all the time because they don't get the full story, but he wants them anyway, right? Like he pulls the lowest of the low up to this place where they have self-respect and dignity because Jesus sees them for who they are. With all of this that we know about Jesus, people still were offended by what he had to say. And so the next question that we have to sort of engage with is if we're following Jesus and his way, what makes us think that we're not going to offend people by following Jesus? Now, that can be taken one of two ways, and I'll say this. That is not, and I'm preaching to myself here, just so you know, that is not a free pass to say or do things that intentionally frustrate or make people angry just because it's kind of fun to see a reaction out of them, right? That's my wheelhouse, Let's go ahead and just say the most offensive thing possible in the name of truth, just so that people know where I stand and where I think they stand too, right? That's not what Jesus is doing here. But I think we have to understand something is that ultimately Jesus was not crucified because he was really nice, because he was super tolerant, or because he was all-inclusive and accepting of everybody in, in, in every way. People yelled crucify him at the end of Jesus' life because of three things. Take note of this. This is why Jesus was offensive to people, and this is why people will be offended by us if we pursue Christ. It's these three things. Number one, Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus made that claim that I and my Father are one. And when he said that, it wasn't just one in purpose. It wasn't just one in spirit. It's like we're the same. We're of the same substance. Jesus claimed to be God. That was offensive to people. When we, when we proclaim Jesus as God, not God as we define him or her or whomever it might be, you know, karma or the universe or all this stuff, but Jesus as God, that will be offensive to people because of the next thing that Jesus said that offends people. Number two, Jesus said he was the only way to the Father. That is offensive to people. Because when we say there are not multiple paths to heaven, Buddhists, Muslim, Hindu, any other world religion, animist worship, even people within the, the, the quote-unquote Christian sphere, but who don't understand that Jesus is God, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Like, it is offensive to them when we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There is no other way. And this is something we have, to, we have to reconcile this. We have to work through this. 
Because in our logic, the things that we might think, it'd be like, well, if God's so big and there are people in so many different places of the world and so many different cultures and all these kinds of things, like, why would God make it so hard? Why would he just say it's only one guy from, from Jerusalem, right? Way back 2,000 years ago, how can God say it's just him? Well, the reality is Jesus explains that. Jesus says that the path to heaven, the way to get to heaven is narrow. But it's not because he's trying to make it hard. It's because he's actually trying to make it simple. When there's just one answer that's correct, that's really simple. That means everything else has to line up with that one answer. Conversely, Jesus says that the path to hell is wide open. It's an easy path. And the gates are wide open that lead to destruction. So the person that says, I think God has multiple ways to get to heaven. They're falling in line with what Jesus says and going, you want multiple, big, broad, wide open gates? That actually leads to hell. Listen, when Jesus said that, it was offensive. Why? Because he lived in a Roman culture, even though he was Jewish. He lived in a Roman culture where the Romans had multiple gods, multiple idols. And for him to say, no, there's only one way, and I'm it, that's offensive. When you and I take a stand in our faith and say there's only one way to heaven. That's why it's important that you become a Christian. That's why it's essential that you believe upon Jesus and repent and confess him as your Lord and follow after him because without him, there is no access to eternal glory. There is no access to heaven as we know it. To the Father, there is no access without Jesus. And then Jesus did one other thing, the third thing here that caused people to be offended by him And so it should be for you and for me. Jesus rejected what the culture and religion of that day accepted as normal. What Jesus brought onto the scene was revolutionary. It was completely in contradiction to what the culture of that day said was acceptable and good. That still holds true today. For you and for me to take a stand in our life and in our culture, and to say, no, the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus did, this defines what is good and right and true, not just what my opinion on something is or not just my pursuit of personal pleasure or personal freedom or personal expression. When we say, no, Jesus defines what is good and right and true, it flies in the face of our culture and it offends people. It offends people. Scripture says that Jesus is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. To those who are already going down, haven't placed faith in Jesus, he simply becomes something they trip over on their way to hell. And that's sad. It may seem counterintuitive to the love and grace of God to to see that Jesus is, in his ministry, offends people. But remember, he's not the one that is being offensive. People are offended because they don't want to submit and obey what Jesus says and does. And so for us, if we're going to be faithful to the way of Jesus and his message, I mean, what makes us think that we're not going to offend people as well? We will. And even with the best of intentions, even with a desire to see people saved, even with that heart of grace and love and mercy and kindness that we want people to come into the fellowship of God's family, people are going to be offended when we make those claims that Jesus made. 
And the truth is, is that if we're doing our job, we're going to offend two kinds of people. And I'll end with this. Just, just be aware. This is the kind of experience we're going to have as we follow Jesus. And I'll say this. I'll, I'll add on to that point that Jesus says the way to heaven is narrow, right? The path to heaven is narrow. Anybody that tells you that following Jesus or being a Christian is easy is full of garbage, and I, I, this has become more true for me as days go by, as we understand our position in this world. Listen, following Jesus is not for cowards. It takes people to be upright and stalwart and devoted and disciplined. It takes effort in, in the sense of like, man, Jesus, I just want to be more like you. I want to be more holy. I want to pursue what is good and right and true. And the truth is, is that's hard. Just is. Being a Christian is hard. But as hard as it might be and as challenging as it might be for us, it's 100% worth it. Now and for eternity. The two people that we're going to offend, the first is this. Those who think that the way of the world, defined by secularism, greed, selfish pleasure, we're going to offend those people who think that, that individuality and the way of the world is the way to achieve happiness and significance. When we tell them that actually the way to be great is to humble yourself and be the servant of all like Jesus. If we tell people that following Jesus is not about money and cars and wealth and pleasure, it's about eternal significance in being a part of God's kingdom, that's offensive to people who want to define themselves by the world standards that says, you're awesome if you have more money than everybody else. That's the opposite of what Jesus says. And when someone gets told that, it's offensive to them. America is one of the hardest places in the world to witness to. You realize that there are people in other countries, this is mind-blowing to me. There are people in other countries that send missionaries to America. Do you understand why that's so shocking? Is because America historically has been what we would consider a Christian nation. And the fact that we, where religion has been free, Bibles are free, churches are wide open, all those kinds of things, the fact that other countries look at America and just go, oh, geez, they need Jesus. We need to send missionaries to America. That is shocking. For anybody who's been in the church for a long time, we grew up with like, nah, we got missionaries in Africa and South America and Australia. We got, you know, England's a non-Christian nation now, so we send missionaries over there. Like, we've always been raised, if you've been in church, with this idea of like, America, that's where God's blessing is, and so we'll send out people from America. Hey, guess what? The rest of the world thinks we're idiots. The rest of the world thinks we're godless pagans. And they're sending missionaries our way. What does that mean for us? We're here. <laughs> what are we supposed to be doing, right? Presenting Jesus, speaking the truth in love, but knowing that those people are going to be offended. The second group of people that will be offended by Jesus as he is and as he presents himself are the comfortably religious people. The people who would even say that they're a Christian, but they define that and they define their salvation by things like church attendance, acceptable behavior. Note, I didn't say good behavior, acceptable behavior, and doing, quote unquote, enough for the Lord. When confronted with the real Jesus, the Jesus that scripture shows us, even religious people who would say that I'm Christian, I go to a Christian church, they're offended when they're told that actually they're not okay the way they are. 
they need to keep pursuing Jesus. They need to keep being more like Jesus. There's no stopping point that says, I've done enough so far. Not until we reach eternity. Not until we reach glory. There's never enough of us that is like Jesus. There's always something that needs to change and become more like Jesus. There is never a day in our life where we achieve perfection and are without sin until eternity. Anyone thinks they can get there? You're lying to yourself. There's always something more we need to surrender to the Lord. Those two groups of people are going to be offended by us. Those who are entirely worldly and those who are religious in nature but haven't submitted to Jesus completely. Now, Jesus' comment here isn't to frustrate us. It's not to tell us, hey, there's no hope for you having an influence on your family or having an effect on your hometown. That's not what he's saying. But what he is doing is he's opening our eyes to, and he was opening his disciples' eyes because he's about ready to send them out two by two and give them authority to heal and to do awesome things. But I think what he's training them to do is go, hey, listen, even me, in all my perfection and everything that I'm doing, I get rejected. But I'm getting rejected because I'm holding the line of truth. Buck up. Take courage. As you pursue the truth, you're going to get rejected. You're going to come up against opposition. But know that you have the opportunity for a very, very sweet kind of fellowship with Jesus because of what he experienced. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I read this, I think, last week. I don't even remember at this point. But Paul tells Timothy this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll end here. 2 Timothy 2, 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if you have died with him, you will also live with him. If you endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, or another translation of that is suffer. If we suffer, we will also reign with him. Not for the purpose of discouragement by any stretch, but I think that we as followers of Jesus, in knowing that our lives are to conform to him, they're supposed to look like him, if we're sitting fat and happy and we don't see ourselves in a whole lot of conflict or turmoil, maybe that's a point where we need to go, am I really that devoted to the message of Jesus? Am I really laying out there for the world around me these truths that Jesus proclaims, that he is God, that he is the only way to the Father, and that he rejects the culture of the world? If I do that, then I think the promise is, is that I'm going to endure some suffering in my life, but it will be worth it eternally. If I suffer now, I simply look forward to reigning with Christ in eternity. In years and years of counseling with people, you know, people, life's hard. People have hard circumstances. There's wounds, there's pain, there's, there's things that are troubling. 
And sometime, sometimes the answer is quite simply this. Hey, hang on. Hang on to Jesus. You may not be vindicated in this life. You may not be treated fairly in this life. You may not receive even perhaps the healing that you're praying for, but it's because God knows that there's something better for you in the circumstance that you're in. So the answer oftentimes is simply, hold on. Don't let go of Jesus. Find fellowship with him. And in that fellowship with him, find comfort, encouragement, joy, peace, strength. Find all of those things in becoming more and more like Jesus.